This is an ABC podcast. Good fella morning, Nissan Bolivinaka, and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Eggy here for a Tuesday morning. Thanks for tuning in. Today on the show, a court has ordered a stop to the culling of bull and tiger sharks in New Caledonia. We'll be speaking live to a shark expert on this. Thoughts from a Samoan delegation visit to Australia to learn about how to adapt to climate change. Right now, climate change is a real issue uh, back home. We are feeling the impacts, even though we don't contribute to that much of the emissions. Australia is home to hundreds of ancient indigenous sign languages, many of which are extinct or endangered. 43% of indigenous people, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders here in Australia, will have some form of hearing loss. More on that story and others, and if you'd like to find them, simply type into your search engine, ABC Pacific Beat, and feel free to share across all your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol, and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, opponents of deep-sea mining remain sceptical that Papua New Guinea's government's recent ban on seafloor resource projects marks the end of the controversial Sawara One project. PNG's Prime Minister James Marapa says there'll be no deep-sea mining in the country until there's a scientific evidence that it can be done in an environmentally sensitive manner. Those opposed to the activity say the announcement still leaves the door open to mining in the future and a complete moratorium is needed. Liam Fox reports. When Jonathan Mesulam from the Alliance of Solwara Warriors heard PNG's Prime Minister had announced a ban on deep sea mining, he was elated. So I think that finally, you know, our Prime Minister was able to uh, make a statement publicly. Then that, that was what we've been uh, uh, expecting from uh, people, uh, you know, our leaders. He's been at the forefront of the campaign against deep-sea mining in PNG for over a decade. But after some time to reflect, Mr Mesulam's initial elation has faded. He has come up with a statement that leaves the door open for further uh, explorations. So by having such statement, it's not really satisfying for us. Last month, Prime Minister James Marape announced a stop to deep-sea mining in the country after returning from the Melanesian Spearhead Group Leaders Meeting in Vanuatu. There, he and the other leaders of the diplomatic grouping agreed to undertake not to allow underwater seabed mining to be carried out in their jurisdictions and jointly call for a Pacific-wide moratorium, according to a signed declaration released by the MSG. On his return, Mr Marape told local media there was a caveat that if it is environmentally okay, based on scientific evidence, then on a case-by-case basis, it will be processed, he said. One has to be really clear about what the criteria is for environmental sensitivity and that those criteria are based on science, uh, not on the economics of mining. Dr Helen Rosenbaum is the co-founder of the Deep Sea Mining Campaign, which advocates for a ban on all seabed mining. She says the term used by the Prime Minister to describe the threshold for a potentially acceptable seafloor project, environmentally sensitive, is vague and subjective. 
We know that companies and the governments that are supporting those companies will have a different interpretation to what scientists and people concerned with the conservation of the ecology and also the livelihoods of the people who the coastal communities who depend on those ecologies might consider to be an environmental threshold. The PNG government was the first in the world to issue exploration and mining leases for an undersea project. That was back in 2011 to Canadian company Nautilus Minerals for its Solwara 1 project to mine hydrothermal vents on the floor of the Bismarck Sea off New Ireland for copper and gold. The government even chipped in 300 million kina of public money, around 130 million Australian dollars, for a stake in the project but its experimental nature generated a lot of local opposition. In any event, the company went bust in 2019, and that seemed to be the end of Solwara 1. But earlier this year, PNG's mining minister told Parliament another company, Deep Sea Mining Finance Limited, had bought Nautilus's assets during liquidation, including its mining lease and two exploration leases, and Solwara 1 was back on the table. Dr Rosenbaum says there is no way to mine chimney-like hydrothermal vents on the seafloor in an environmentally sensitive manner. Because the mining process basically involves a complete levelling of of that whole environment and a scraping and and collecting of that whole mineral substrate and everything that um, lives on it. It's not just conservationists, scientists and coastal communities opposed to Solwara 1 Plenty of parliamentarians are too, like the outspoken governor of Oro province, Gary Jufa. I believe we should just cancel the leases, which I believe are illegal in the first instance because there's no law in the country in regards to the regulating of this particular type of activity. Though Mr Jufa is more optimistic that Solwara 1 will never become a reality, even if the Prime Minister's recent announcement is not a complete moratorium on deep-sea mining. From what I understand from discussions I've had with the Prime Minister, he is opposed to the idea of deep sea mining. In fact, he has been very critical of the previous project. He was then Finance Minister, and he's opposed to it even now. Pacific Beat has sought comment from PNG's Mining Minister, Sir Anno Pala, and the Mineral Resources Authority to clarify what exactly the recent halt to deep sea mining means for the Solwara 1 project. And that's Liam Fox reporting there. Now to a story we've been following for most of the year. A court has ordered a stop to the culling of bull and tiger sharks in New Caledonia. The country's southern province had put a culling program in place following fatal shark attacks this year, including one that killed an Australian tourist. But the cull has been a controversial one and was criticised by scientists and conservationists. This morning we have an expert on shark attacks at the University of New Caledonia who joins us this morning. Morning, Claude Maillet. Uh, good morning, Claude. Good morning to you. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Could you just take us through the court action? I mean, why did a conservation group take the province to court to stop the culling? Okay. Um, what I have to say about the court action is, uh, unfortunately, his scope is not uh, is not very wide. So the court decision, what which was made, 
um, is to stop the killing and only in some uh, protected areas. So there are three small protected areas around Numea where the authorities are not not longer allowed to uh, to to fish any sharks. But anywhere else in, in Numea surrounding and in uh, the New Caledonia Lagoon, the culling is starting again. Uh, the last campaign of shark culling started yesterday. Wow. So, of course, they've ordered a stop to the culling. What has the court said? Like, what is their reason? So the, 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 the court said uh, the, the decision which was made was not uh, fair because it it was involving some restricted protected areas. So uh, the only thing the court said is, in protected areas, you shouldn't fish. But these protected areas are really tiny. So uh, the, the local authorities are still allowed to perform a shark killing all around Numea, except these three tiny uh, protected areas. Claude, did the, the court link its decision to scientific findings and research? Oh, rather linked to ethics. Uh, ethics because uh, the reason why so many people is against shark killing is uh, we don't know what we do when we fish uh, hook out of the water so many sharks. Um, according to recordings, uh, they're not official recordings, um, probably uh, since uh, 2019, 250 sh- sharks have been killed in New Caledonia. Uh, 2019, because it's the uh, first uh, shark attacks in Numea, and this is the beginning of a curling. So if it means a, a huge amount of uh, sharks have been caught and we don't know what is the impact on the fish population. And on the other hand, there were no studies uh, about shark population prior to the culling. So uh, we don't know the first word of what uh, we are doing, we uh, local authorities are doing here. So uh, that's the reason why the court uh, made this decision. But why was the decision to cull sharks so controversial, though? Yeah, because um, uh, the local authorities, uh, they made this decision to protect people. Uh, It's very likely that in uh, Numea waters, there were... uh, huge population of tiger and bull sharks. So they had to do something. But uh, many people in Numea, they, they know uh, wh- how important sharks are for the, for the ecosystems they live in. So um, those same people think uh, that uh, we should better uh, launch some research programs uh, prior to uh, make decisions.
So it's why it's controversial. Yeah, and specifically it is bull sharks and tiger sharks. How, how does the culling happen? How is it done? How is it, how is it done? Okay, by um, uh, fishing lines. So I suppose that, uh, I suppose because we, we don't have public information about the way uh, they do that, uh, but I suppose uh, the um, the lines are baited with uh, fish uh, because, and that's another part of a problem. There are a lot of bycatches. Uh, bycatches is uh, when you catch a shark, but a harmless species, at least one hundred additional sharks have been caught which were not aimed by uh, the operation. So uh, gray reef sharks, hammer sharks, which are not harmful to humans. So they say they are released. But when you released a shark which has been caught to a line for several hours, maybe more, uh, you don't know uh, if it is to survive and likely it's not to survive. Yes, I was going to ask that as to, you know, you said uh, you hook them onto fish lines, uh, you use bait, sorry, as fish lines. Uh, what happens if other sharks do bite the hook then? So, yeah, what happens with, I suppose, the other sharks that may get baited? Excuse me, I didn't get a question. Uh, so you said you the fish lines you use uh, bait the fish, right? Yep. And then what happens, though, if other sharks do bite the hook? They're hooked. <laughs> so if, it, if like, you did explain that uh, other fish do get caught on the fish line. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I was explaining that other sharks, sharks not targeted, are hooked on the lines, of course. Because if you, if you bait with some fish, okay, um, Many kind of, any kind of shark is to bite the line. So that's the reason why some hammer sharks have been caught and some um, uh, lemon sharks and gray sharks. Thank you. Uh, yes. Uh, is it then harmful for the other sharks that get baited? Of course it's harmful. Uh, if, you, if you catch a shark, and you don't want to keep it, you have to release him straight away. But they can do that because uh, most of the time the, the sharks are caught and they are not released at once. Mm. It, it takes a few hours to realize there is a harmer shark which is, has been hooked. Thank you for that, so, Claude. Uh, it's, it's, another, it's another point which is very controversial, it's the point of a bycatches. Mm. What percentage is the bycatch compared to the sharks that are being targeted? Uh, it's a lot. Uh, I, I told you uh, 250 uh, sharks, uh, tiger and bull sharks, fought since the beginning of the culling. And uh, there have been... Uh, 100 bycatches. Mm. That's a lot. Mm. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Aggie Dubon. On the show with me is shark expert Claude Mayo from the University of New Caledonia.
Now, the New Caledonia provincial government has put in place a swimming ban on the beach, Claude, and these culling programs. In your opinion, is there a better solution to this problem of fatal shark attacks? Okay, I think that they, 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 are, uh, they are building a uh, protective uh, net. So it's, it's a good solution to have uh, some protected areas Okay, I, I'm not. I don't fully agree with with uh, shark barriers, shark nets. That it's uh, it's the best which can which can be done. Uh, the um, the swimming is still banned outside the protected area. There, as, at the moment, there is only one in on one beach in Numea. And uh, all uh, recreative activities, uh, such as kite surfing, windsurfing, uh, are allowed, but at the own risk of the people. And at any time, there is a, a, sh- a shackling campaign. Uh, uh, the access to 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 the shore is uh, is uh, forbidden. So. Uh, for 10 days uh, running from yesterday, I'm not allowed to uh, go and pedal in uh, Numea area. Well, um, I, I think they had to do something. Um, uh, protective nets is probably a good solution. But what I, what I think is... Uh, 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 Funding the the, the, protect, uh, the protection of the public only on those nets and only on shark cuttings is a mistake. Mm. Is there an end date to the curl, though? Like, when will it stop? Excuse me? Uh, is there an end date to the curl? Like, uh, when do you think the culling will stop? Oh, it's supposed to. Uh, it's supposed to 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 be performed until the end of this year, at least. But um, there is no reason to think it will stop. It will stop at the time no sharks are caught anymore. But this will never happen because. Uh, New Caledonia is uh, is, a, is is is, a, is an island, but it's a big island, and it's surrounded by surrounded by other islands. And we know that uh, sharks, especially tiger sharks, uh, they can uh, make a few hundred kilometer trips from one island to another island. That means when you caught, when you catch a shark in Numea. You don't know where this shark actually comes from. There has been a, a very interesting uh, study uh, which has been done in Norfolk. Uh, 35 tiger sharks have been tagged in Norfolk. And what do you think? Some of those, of those sharks, they have been found in Numea waters. It's 750 kilometers from Norfolk to Numea. That means uh, local population of sharks are probably recruiting some individuals from very remote areas. So 
I think this would be endless. So fascinating, Claude. I really appreciate your insight into this and sharing that with us this morning. Uh, So we thank you for your time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That is Claude Mayo from the University of New Caledonia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. A delegation of 15 Samoan businesses and government leaders were in Australia to learn about adapting and thriving in the face of climate change. The group met with Pacific-owned businesses here in Melbourne to see what lessons they can take back to Samoa. I met up with members of the delegation. CEO of KVA Consult Limited in Samoa, Nadia Meredith-Hunt, questions why the islands have to bear the brunt of climate change when they contribute the least. Right now, climate change is a real issue uh, back home. We, we are feeling the impacts, even though we don't contribute to that much of the emissions. Uh, so basically, it was a learning opportunity through and kindly funded by the Australian government. So we, we thought we'll take uh, the opportunity and we're hoping to go back home, implement what we've learned from here. And as you know, climate change, it's not just one person, it's a whole of country approach that's needed. So working together with the different partners that we have brought over, we're hoping that would uh, make a difference. The team visited Melbourne's only Pacific-owned importer-exporter of cacao beans, Living Coco, to better understand their ethical approach to food sovereignty, which supports Pacific Island farmers to make a sustainable livelihood. For myself personally, it's been an eye-opening experience hearing about the different projects that are happening in Australia and also what EY have been able to do across the Pacific, Uh, definitely in the areas of renewable energy. That's a major issue back home. The cost of electricity is quite high, (laughs) so anything that can reduce the cost and also help our people to adapt to the impacts of climate change, that's definitely an area that we're we're wanting to pursue. Senior consultant of KVA Consult Limited, Sosifina Talauta Tualaulele, says you're never too old to learn something new, especially about the many ways a cacao bean can be used. You know, you think you've you know everything, but no, it's it's so true that learning is such an ongoing process. What we've learned um, the whole of last week was listening to all the different innovative ideas in terms of managing emissions. You know, the technology that's available, how to monitor those kind of things, and and now, including you know a business like this, um, and also how innovative. The different uses of <laughs> I mean, I also grew up, you know, my saw my grandfather in this same industry, but you know, to see it being taken into a different level up a notch. And imagine if that kind of knowledge is also, you know, transferred and our people made aware of, and how they can also tap into that. But it's also good to hear the beans, you know, as also part of of the market that you guys. You know, uh, investing it—it's—it's 
It's awesome stuff. It's very inspirational. The Samoan government has identified key industries and the importance of climate resilience and digital innovation and the achievement of development goals and driving economic prosperity. Well, we're hoping it's more community-led. You know, the first, the people who feel it first, the first responders are people in the communities. So we're hoping that the lessons learned from here, they're able to see what's uh, possible and then tap into government and the private sector. We have bankers who are here, so being able to access funding through the traditional banking system for communities, that's that's definitely a key (laughs) priority. That is CEO of Caveat Consult Limited, Nadia Meredith Hunt, there ending that report. Uh, Stay tuned because we've got our news wrap up shortly with producer Carl Evans here on Pacific Beat. Hi, I'm Sayuli Salamasino von Reiki, and I invite you to come with me to explore how our Pacific cultures have evolved with the changing times in a new show, Culture Compass. You'll meet people who are passionate about keeping traditions alive, passing them down to the next generation while adapting old ways to the present. Culture Compass, Tuesdays at 9am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. That's right, it is that time where we get to catch up with producer Carl Evans, who is here to share what has been happening around the region with our news wrap. With that, I say good morning. Good morning to you, Aggie. Happy Tuesday. It is Tuesday, isn't it? Wishing it was Friday, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's get straight into it. PNG and USA militaries, they've wrapped up their first joint uh, maritime patrol together following the signing of a cooperation agreement. How did that actually go? Yeah, so uh, it went well by all accounts. The uh, Yeah, the first joint operation to counter illicit maritime activities uh, in PNG waters has wrapped up. Uh, and according to a release from the US Embassy in PNG, uh, ship riders from uh, Papua New Guinea agencies spent 10 days on US vessels countering uh, some of those activities. Um, the operation was led by PNG, uh, but was supported by the US Embassy and US Coast Guard. Um, throughout that operation, they conducted four bilateral boarding of foreign fishing vessels targeting tuna in the PNG zone. Um, they discovered no, ili- no illegal activity, activity, funnily enough, this time around, but they were able to reinforce things like compliance uh, and act as that deterrent, um, which I'm sure will have an impact going forward. They, they did, however, discipline one vessel for failing to activate its memory system equipment uh, in accordance with PNG law. So I, I, I imagine that vessel will do that next time they, uh, they go out to sea. Um, on top of that, though, the operation just served as a chance to, uh, for both sides to learn each other's strate- uh, planning st- strategies, uh, as well as engage in, you know, things like cultural exchanges uh, and traditions. Nice. Thank you for that, Carl. Uh, we head to the Cook Islands. Uh, the Coast Watchers from the Second World War have been formally recognised in New Zealand. How good is that? Yeah, this is, this is quite a nice one. So uh, a plaque for a Cook Islands radio operator, his name was Pooh Barnabar, uh, has been unveiled at O'Neill's Point Cemetery in Auckland. Uh, it makes him the first Cook Islands Coast Guard to be formally recognised since New Zealand, the New Zealand government uh, made steps last year to acknowledge uh, their service to the war effort. Um, they played a really important role. Uh, they observed many enemy movements. Uh, they rescued stranded Allied personnel from their posts throughout the Pacific Islands during World War II. Um, but for decades, civilian Cook Island uh, uh, civilian Cook Island Coast Watchers did not actually receive the same recognition as their New Zealand counterparts. Uh, until now, that is. 
So from here on out, families of these men um, can now receive a certificate of service signed by the New Zealand Governor General uh, and have service plaques attached to uh, their Coast Watchers headstones um, like other service personnel. I love that. Beautiful. Uh, who was Pooh Banaba, though? Yeah, so he was part of a, uh, a network of civilians who kept watch 24-7 um, for enemy aircraft, ships uh, from stations within the Pacific during the Second World War. Um, it was a dangerous job. Uh, in fact, 17 Coast Watchers were actually executed uh, in 1942 by the Japanese in Tarawa. Um, in Banaba's instance, uh, now he's actually buried in uh, Rarotonga, but uh, this particular, his plaque has actually been placed on the grave of his father, uh, who is buried uh, in New Zealand. They had a really nice ceremony with full full military honours and stuff as well. Oh, wow. So, yeah, really nice pictures online. So good to acknowledge that. Now we finally end with some sport. Uh, as always, Samoa's Lima Sopoanga has made a plea uh, for his lost childhood kicking tee to be returned at the Rugby World Cup. Is that right? Yeah, you read that correct. So uh, the former All Black fly half, uh, he actually came on in the second half of Samoa's win over Chile as a replacement and converted Samoa's final try. However, he left his tee uh, by the pitch with some eye drops um, and, and someone's come along and taken it. So he's taken to Twitter asking for whoever took it to give it back. Um, he's had it since he was 14 years old and has even offered to pay for it. Um, uh, the World Rugby Media Chief has since joined the appeal as well. Uh, he's promised World Cup merchandise for the safe return uh, of the plastic stand, um, which I'm not sure if you're aware, but it's 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 a it's a stand which kickers use to prop the ball upright um, when they take kickoffs, penalties, uh, and conversions. But um, but yeah, it obviously means a lot to him. It's it's not surprising because you know athletes they can be quite pedantic when it comes to preparation and things like that. And I guess it begs the question, uh, Aggie, did, did you have any items or trinkets? growing up, which you had somewhat of a superstitious attachment to? Uh, quietly, I actually, I don't know if you know what knuckle bones are. Do you have those knuckle bones? Oh, are they those little did. things that used to come in the bags? Yes. You pull them then, out? Yeah. yeah. And then you throw them up, try and catch them yeah, type thing. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what it was, but I, I literally carried those things everywhere with me. I don't know why, but they were just something to obviously play if I met up with my other cousins or friends, but it was something that I... Head on me. God, what a throwback. I do, I do, I <laughs> That's do how old those. you know I am. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so I don't know about you. Did you have anything? I actually uh, owned a pair of Marcus Byers socks. Uh, the, wow. the PNG Rugby League player for the Melbourne Storm. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not kidding. No, a, a family friend of ours, uh, he was actually a trainer for the Melbourne Storm in the late 90s and uh, in early oh. 2000s. And um, and uh, he was staying with us uh, one night when the Storm were playing Canberra, the Canberra Raiders in Canberra where we lived. And uh, and he came back the next morning after the game. He said, Kyle, I've got something for you. I was about oh. 12 years old at the time. And it was a pair of Marcus Byers socks, which he had you. worn the night before. Washed, obviously. Um, thankfully. <laughs> But, uh, but no, I reckon I wore those things for uh, three years straight until my mother uh, mercifully threw them out um, <laughs> <laughs> completely, completely hole ridden and whatnot. But wow. um, no, I always, always held, always, always cherished those. But <laughs> speaking of, um, of of World Cup kickers, actually bringing it back to uh, to Lima, did yes. you know that? The, uh, the Fijian kicker, uh, Simeon Kuravoli, who converted 14 points for Fiji against Australia. You know, he was the flying Fijian's fourth choice kicker. Fourth. Fourth. He, he was fourth wow. in. He was initially ranked behind uh, the injured Kayla Munts, uh, Teddy Teller, and Frank Lamani. However, he started the game at halfback and was given the goal kicking duties. But what an incredible, incredible story to perform like that under pressure. I would say you never know when you're right, when you're called to do what you need to do. <laughs> 
you step up. Documentary, so well done. worthy yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Oh, what a good story to end off. Um, but look, if anyone's out there and they know where the tea is, yeah. <laughs> can you give it back? <laughs> Lemma's looking for it. Uh, again, thank you very much, uh, Kyle, for joining us for our news wrap here on Pacific Beat. Inzane Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack. Inzane Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league. Featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Inzane Rugby League. Tuesday nights at 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Your home of rugby league in the Pacific. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. This is your host, Aggie Thubal. As we get into a story here about an extraordinary life that Xavier Barker had. He's known as a sensei to the hundreds of people he trained in judo. And he also pours his heart into revitalizing indigenous languages in remote Australia. But before all of that, Xavier was fighting a battle against what he calls a bad government in Nauru, the Pacific island he calls home. His political advocacy landed him in hot water, so much so that he can't return to the country without the threat of going to jail. Marion Farr spoke with Xavier and his wife Jade for this report. I got a message telling me that um, the Minister for Finance and and this thug would be waiting for me at the airport when I come to Nauru and um, so I don't care. I, I don't care what they think of me. Uh, remembering Nauru when I was a, a young person, it was an island of excess. There was no shortage of food, money, entertainment. By the time I got back as an adult, it was essentially broke. Governance wasn't particularly strong. That was my first trip to Nauru. I followed Xavier to Nauru not really knowing what to expect. Actually, having never travelled in the Pacific before, the hardships of living there was something that I really had trouble getting used to. And I probably didn't get used to it in the four years I was there. I think I struggled mentally for the whole time. I probably decided to move there at the worst time, of, or one of the worst times in Nauru's history. Uh, there was, uh, at my house, I had no running water. At best, 12 hours of electricity a day. Work was hard to get, and for periods of two years, you might get paid two or three times during that. Late 2009, we moved back to Australia to um, have my second daughter. Between then and 2017, 2018, refugee camps had reopened there. It meant there was a huge flow of money into the country uh, that was used to prop up a, a bad government. People would send me things that they'd found, emails from ministers, documents that showed they were awarding contracts to their friends and families. We had multiple streams of evidence of corruption, bribery charges against the government at that time. There were arbitrary deportations, arbitrary arrests, people would lose jobs. To me, it was a shameful period of Nauru's history. I had no political power in Nauru, so the only thing I could do about it was talk about it on Facebook and things like that. It made me very unpopular. My family and I received lots of death threats, and I had a seven-year 
prison term waiting for me for spreading my political hatred on Facebook. He seemed really sad that, I don't know if sad is the right word, but disappointed perhaps that um, people that he loved and trusted and were really, really good friends of his were part of the, you know, terrible things that the government was doing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it would be like if we went over there, if they would actually arrest him and lock him up, but I would, I would say so because he's, he's quite vocal. Um, I would have liked my kids to have seen it or at least spent time there, but now I'm, I'm okay with it. I, I don't feel any strong desire to go back at this point of my life, so I'm at peace with it. And that's Xavier Barker ending that report, which was produced by Marion Farr. Now, the Pacific region has some of the highest rates of non-communicable diseases, or NCDs, in the world. This includes cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, cancers, and chronic respiratory diseases. The region is facing an epidemic of NCDs, which is responsible for 75% of deaths. Health professionals from across the region recently met in the Cook Islands to chart the progress made in fighting NCDs. So joining us live is Sir Colin Tukuitonga, Board Director of the Pacifica Medical Association. With that, I say, Fagalavalayatsu, Sir Colin. Oh, uh, good day. Uh, you've moved uh, across, I gather. <laughs> so, mahalo again. Nice to catch up again. Absolutely. It is a joy just to have you on the show, uh, Sir Colin. Uh, as I said in the introduction, look, those those numbers and stats are high. I mean, 75% of deaths in the Pacific are attributed to NCDs. I mean, is there really actually anything to be quite optimistic about? Yes. I mean, we did talk about that in the Cook said people have spent a lot of time and effort and money uh, to try to make a dent but overall it's uh, disappointing there is some uh, light at the end of the tunnel if you pardon the expression it looks like uh, smoking in Tonga and in Samoa and possibly elsewhere in the region is uh, dropping but clearly still uh, very high but uh, the summary is that uh, overall uh, we're not making the impact that we would want to see with regard to NCDs uh, so, Colin, is it frustrating, look, as a health professional, that we don't appear to be making much ground against NCDs? Well, totally, and uh, uh, not so much uh, personal frustration, but uh, uh, I suppose disappointment and concern about the premature mortality, uh, Pacific adults dying before before they're 65, uh, generally regarded as premature, uh, which means that people can't uh, retire uh, or see their grandchildren, all of those uh, sorts of things. So, uh, yeah, less so much for us in the sector, but uh, clearly concern for the impact it has in in our communities, not just uh, in New Zealand, but but in the islands as well. Mm. Uh, what was the message from the recent Pacifica Medical Association meeting there in the Cook Islands? Well, firstly, I think it was uh, fantastic. More than, uh, I'm told, more than 600 people were there and a number of uh, 
topics uh, were discussed. I raised the um, issue of the Barbados meeting of health ministers, uh, the uh, uh, ministers of health from small islands, developing states that adopted the Bridgetown Declaration, which is uh, an additional tool the WHO has facilitated specifically on this uh, occasion for small island states that might help them to take the next uh, step. Because clearly, uh, I don't think uh, there's a magic uh, bullet anywhere for NCDs, and it's going to have to be lots of people doing lots of different things if we're going to make the change and the impact that we seek. Mm. I mean, we have to see that it's post-COVID now. And are there any main strategies, any policies that you think that governments right across the Pacific region should be advocating for? Well, I think financing came out tops, meaning uh, a lot of the small health systems and the islands are already stretched uh, COVID spending is a big item there, and there isn't really scope within the domestic uh, budgets uh, to allocate to additional work on NCD, so financing is a big one, and there are suggestions in the Bridgetown Declaration about how additional resources might be found. In other words, don't go beating up on the poor old health ministers. He or she doesn't really have much more to spend, and we have to be thinking about alternatives, uh, uh, ways of finding resources. One of the things, of course, there is the fact that development partners, donors, don't seem to prioritize NCDs despite the burden. And uh, uh, one of the recommendations in the Bridgetown uh, Declaration is to try to um, create a a different approach uh, by way of an index that takes account of the situation in small island states. The problem for us is that small island states in the Pacific are are in the so-called middle income uh, category for uh, as part of the UN system, which means that some of them are not eligible for international development financing. So that's an example of one of the additional suggestions in the uh, declaration that was adopted. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Sir Colin. You know, when I talked about, you know, NCDs, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, cancers, chronic respiratory diseases, are we talking about not just the health system, but us as a people being able to live and do better with our own health? Oh, absolutely. I mean, NCDs is the culmination of uh, a combination of uh, life's events, you know, diets, uh, reduced physical activity, smoking, all of the things that uh, human beings engage in. And and it is important not to blame individuals for that, but to share information so they can um, opt uh, for, you know, healthier uh, lifestyles, for example, give up smoking if they're a smoker. But it's uh, the point about the Bridgetown Declaration is that we have to recognize that there are systemic issues that need to be addressed by way of uh, policies and interventions by relevant governments. For example, healthy foods, we might say, this is what we think you should uh, um, use more often by way of healthy foods, but obviously for many low-income families, it's unaffordable. So those uh, kinds of things. So it's creating a combination of individual decisions as well as appropriate uh, policies adopted by governments.
Mm, nice. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking with uh, PMA Association Group Board Director Sir Colin Tukuitonga about the impacts of non-communicable diseases or NCDs amongst our Pacific people. You just brought up a, a good point there. Do you agree then it's not just a health problem, but a social one too? Oh, totally. And we've said repeatedly that this is uh, going to be solved by the health sector. It's agriculture, it's education, it's sport and recreation, it's uh, community engagement, uh, sports uh, groups, uh, everyone, whole of society, I guess, is is the jargon, the recognition that uh, this can't be fixed just uh, within the health sector. In, in fact, the contribution from the health sector is quite modest, uh, uh, you know, um, treating diabetes and high blood pressure better, uh, for example, uh, those kinds of things clearly make an impact. But this is much, much bigger than just the health sector. Mm. I often think, despite all the good work being done in this field, like even the advancement of technology, uh, funding, as you say, but how do we really reduce the risk factors? Well, a combination of things. I think uh, clearly WHO has put out what are called best uh, buys, meaning if you only have so much money, what would a government uh, do? And this is uh, uh, interventions that have been shown to be effective. So, so for example, there's still uh, many in the region that don't have limits on tobacco uh, sponsorship and um, uh, sports uh, support by the alcohol industry, those things we know that if you act on those, you will reduce, uh, it'll take time, but it will have the result of uh, a reduction of of those risk factors will eventually lead to a reduction in the uh, NCDs. Some people might say, well, you know, this is an individual decision and that's uh, true to a point. But as we discussed before, it's not helpful to blame the individual when the environment um, around them is not uh, helpful. You know, food items, uh, healthy food items, more expensive, lack of open spaces, especially in places like Auckland for people to get out and exercise, uh, delayed access to health care, those kinds of things need to be addressed. I love that. Sir Colin, we have to come to the end of our time here, but I really appreciate uh, you sharing that information this morning. Always good to catch up with you. Well, thanks very much, uh, Again, All the best in the big smoke. Uh, <laughs> I'll speak to you again, no doubt. Absolutely. Whakawelahi. That is PMA Group Board Director Sir Colin Tukuitonga. Rodney Adams found out he was an Indigenous as an adult, and it sent him on a journey into a disappearing world. Australia is home to hundreds of ancient Indigenous sign languages, many of which are extinct or endangered. Now Rodney wants to see new life breathed into these languages. I grew up in a hearing family, so I became deaf at the age of two, and that was because of meningitis. Rodney Adams is signing to me in Auslan and speaking through an interpreter. When I was 18 then, I started going to TAFE and I started learning Auslan and that's when I became part of the deaf community. And so that was a journey itself, learning about my deaf identity and then later on discovering my Aboriginal identity. Rodney grew up in a white Australian family and six or seven years ago he found out about his Aboriginal family. So I wanted to look at where did my family come from. 
he found out that as a deaf Aboriginal person, he wasn't alone by any stretch. 43% of Indigenous people, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders here in Australia, will have some form of hearing loss. So the journey that I've been doing has actually led me into exploring Aboriginal Sign Language. Rodney now teaches the deaf and lectures in Indigenous Sign Languages at the University of Sydney. The whole of Australia, we have such a rich country full of Indigenous Sign Languages they've been using for thousands of years. An Indigenous Sign Language doesn't have to just cover people who have a hearing loss. Maybe for hunting they may use gestures and sign language to not um, scare the animals that they're hunting. There could be certain taboo subjects, some business that they may not use spoken language, they use Indigenous sign languages for. I know an example of a hearing Indigenous woman after sorry business, she didn't speak for many, many years afterwards, decided to not speak so she used Indigenous Sign Language to communicate. It's interesting that she could continue to communicate within her community because she had access to sign language and everyone else in her community knew sign language as well. They could understand her. It's just a natural, normal way of communicating and unfortunately through colonisation we see those languages and the use of those cultural appropriate languages becoming extinct. We have technology, hearing aids, cochlear implants. They work well to a certain extent, but deaf children don't all respond to technology like that. So if you think about education being more holistic, not just focus on the technology to fix someone's hearing, could they look at including something that's visual? Because of the high percentage of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander children with hearing loss... We really need to revitalise Aboriginal Sign Language. If I had my time again, I wish when I was growing up I had role models who were deaf so I could understand that there is a language and a community out there. That story by Nicole Kirby. Join me, Sosafina Formoli, for On The Record, an hour-long deep dive into the music that has made an incredible range of artists from right across the Pacific. We'll discover stories behind songs of inspiration, songs of activism, songs of evolution and songs of pride as we chop it up with Pacifica musicians you already know and love and hopefully some you'll be meeting and falling in love with for the first time. On The Record, Tuesdays at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Time to take a look back at our main stories today. Marine experts have welcomed a court decision to seize the culling of sharks in New Caledonia after it was put in place following multiple attacks earlier this year. A huge amount of uh, sharks have been caught and we don't know what is the impact on the fish population. There were no studies uh, about shark population prior to the culling. And that's Claude Mayo, an expert on shark attacks from the University of New Caledonia. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next. Coming up after that is Nisha Daly. We end off the show acknowledging Pacific Beat was produced on the lands of the Boonarong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, I'm Aggie Dubong, and this is Pacific Beat. Pacific Beat.